Okay, Aaron, four minutes to go. Yeah, look, but don't, don't, don't rush this because entertainment is about ritual. Entertainment is about superstition. Entertainment is about putting on a show. And before we put on a show around here, especially one of our spectaculars, you know that the final ritual is always to read to Oscar from his favorite book, which is, of course, Puffin, Bird of the Open Seas by Lynn Martin. Okay, everyone knows this is our ritual. This is our practice. And as such, we have to do it. We have to make the time to do it. Okay, Oscar, we were not going to skip this, Oscar. The common puffin's tiny gray eyes, dressed up for spring, are no less remarkable. Rimmed in a red shade that matches the bill's red color, the eye at the top is capped with a triangular blue-gray scale. A leathery rectangular scale of the same color appears below each eye. These two adornments, together with the dark lash line extending from the eye across the cheek, give the puffin's face a clownish appearance. The puffin's feet, now a brilliant shade of vermilion, complete its spring outfit. It's May, Oscar. It's May. La imagen por la cual vale la pena arriesgar la vida, sacrificarse hasta la muerte en los campos de batalla de todos los continentes del mundo. Live from West Berlin, it's the committee program sponsored by Cadre Cigarettes, the national cigarette of Equatorial Fredonia, and starring Ron Chowdhury, Julia Doubleday, Forrest Lovett, Fiamma Meli, Javad Castotti, and yours truly, Jacopo Castelletti. And now, a man who is not afraid to read a stuffed bird a story, Ron Chowdhury. Hi, hi. Thank you, Jacopo. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, this is our post May Day spectacular. It may, maybe it would have had more bite as our May Day spectacular. People around here will tell you they don't get paid. People around here will tell you they have too many things to do. So people around here are responsible for your lack of a May Day spectacular and your having a post May Day spectacular. So I wanna, I wanna put that squarely on you all, Jacopo, you and the rest of the team. I want, I want you to carry that, okay? Uh, in the spirit of, you know, we're going through it and getting it done, we're going to do one of the objects things where I, where I go around and I find something, and we, but we make it sound classy and British. Okay. Yeah, okay, roll. <clears throat> and now, the history of our run in 100 objects. Yes. Quite. Hi, and welcome to the history of a run in 100 objects. When we do highlight some of the fantastic artifacts we have lying around the committee studios, the committee headquarters office, and generally we seek to better understand ourselves through things. I think that's the thing Americans love to do very specifically. Um, but Jacopo, today it also borders on the world of design, so that's why I thought it'd be cool if you were on here and and what I unearthed when I was moving some stuff around is actually this is a cool thing this is a Dutch resistance flyer from the WW2 and let me show that to you I'll show that to you Zoek het zel fifth zoig uh what it is is it's four pigs uh-huh and it says can you find the fifth pig so you're just handing this around it's just it's you know it's pigs nobody's mad but then if you fold it, kind of Mad Max 
Mad Max. No, Mad Magazine style. Uh, did you guys get a lot of Mad Magazine in Italy? Are you familiar with like the, because it really was genre breaking in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, unfortunately. Yeah, so you, they used to have a, a back cover where you folded it uh -huh. and like even the words would line up and say new things and the pictures would line up. This is one of those. So when you fold it all correctly, you get Hitler. You see that? Hitler's the fifth pig. Spoiler for everyone at home, the fifth pig was Hitler. The fifth pig was Hitler. So you have your resistance flyer, you know, you're in Utrecht, you're wandering around, somebody hands that to you. You don't get in trouble because it's just pigs. But then when you put it together, you got yourself Hitler right there. That's Hitler. So that's, that's my object for today. What do you think? It's cool. I think they've been doing this in other case. There have been like, you know, remakes in the last years, which were cool. But you're right. Yeah, I would encourage you to check out the Mad Magazine stuff. They did a lot of sort of really politically subversive things with stuff like this. There isn't anything like it now that's sort of so wacky and yet pointed and slightly earnest in its unearnestness. I don't know how to describe Mag Magazine. I don't know, we gotta, we, gotta, we, gotta, we gotta get deeper into this for you. I think it would be helpful for you. That would be cool, yeah, yeah. I love that. Yeah, yeah. All right, spectacular, let's go. This is Cross Atlantic Cross Talk. Hi, welcome to the committee program post May Day Spectacular. We wanted to get our shit together for May Day. We didn't, and so now the spectacular has moved to a week later. But making it extra spectacular is the return of the Cross-Atlantic Crosstalk gang. That is Ellie May O'Hagan, the director of the Class Think Tank in the UK, and the show's own deputy director, Julia Doubleday. Hello to you both. Hi. I've only just noticed how bizarre your desk is. That's a two You just noticed that? It's a, yeah. it's a puffin. He's had it. That's Oscar. Forever. He smells of the sea. <laughs> Is that a real puffin? It's a real taxidermy puffin, yes. He's from he Iceland. He bought it in duty free. Well, While I under the influence of the I drug Ambien, which yeah. we were speaking of earlier. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't remember much. I was coming home from Finland, and two weeks later, Oscar arrived home from Finland, and we've been inseparable ever since. That's beautiful. And I get him if a run dies. It's already yes. been discussed. That's right. My children have well, abjectly said they about do not want the puffet. They're, they do not like Oscar. They do not want to talk about Oscar. They don't like it. To be fair, the odds that a run actually has a will are, I'm going to say zero. So it's going to be a mad grab. If you are <laughs> a lawyer who wants to help me put together a will for free or for cheap, please get in touch He's with the show. Program at committee.org. <laughs> Uh, and you need to do that in the next three years. Thank you. Appreciate you. <laughs> so actually, uh, I want to take advantage of having you here, Ellie, to ask you to help us make sense of, Kat, to help us make sense Kat. of the British local elections. I mean, look, I will say on the surface, we all saw that certainly London flipped some, some old-timey seats, like Margaret Thatcher's favorite seat, uh, over to Labour. Other places we saw the Tories get blunted by uh, the Greens and by the Lib Dems. Um, what was your take on the shape of the night, especially considering the pressures, both criminal and otherwise, that Boris Johnson and the Tories find themselves under? How did you think the night went? So in terms of Boris Johnson and all of the stuff that he's been doing, I think that actually hasn't been good for Labour because um, I think that people 
people's attitude is not, oh, I have to vote Labour because the Conservatives are really bad. Sorry, the cat. No, 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 Can it's I all good. Again? Yeah, yeah. No, 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 you're good. You're good. Continue. Okay. Um, what was I saying? Yeah, I don't think that people are like, um, oh, well, the Conservatives are really bad, so I have to vote Labour. I think they're basically, people are like, um, politicians are all the same. Mm. And I think that will depress turnout at elections. I mean, I haven't looked at turnout for these local elections, but it's always quite low. Um, and I think uh, that will actually ironically harm Labour. Um, Having said that, the Tories did do pretty badly in these elections. Um, and I think that has to be traced back to like ver various things, not just Partygate, but the cost of living crisis, the scandal about Rishi Sunak avoiding tax, mm -hmm. um, all of this stuff. Um, and I think what I'm worried about is that um, Labour did really well in London um, like, just to say that not all seats in the UK were contested either, so there's just lots of places that, that were, didn't have an election. But Labour did really well in London. It um, won Wandsworth Council, Westminster Council, which has been um, Tory since 1964, and Barnet Council, which is an absolutely dreadful council <laughs> under the Tories. So, um, so that's good. Um, but... Elsewhere, it, I don't think it really, like Labour really had the performance that it needed to in order to feel, to feel confident about its strategy. Because basically Labour's strategy at the moment is like alienate their entire voting coalition in order to attract what I think in America you would call like the Rust Belt voters. Yeah, we're very familiar so with this as a strategy as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think... I like I I would be if I I mean I don't know how they're feeling but if I was them I would be worried about that strategy because I think that actually the sort of electoral trends in this country which are, I think are created by demographic change and economics but the electoral trends in this country is that cities are getting more and more progressive and the kind of sometimes the commute about to the sort of outer ring of the city is um, so because pe people are being displaced out so they have to kind of travel in. That's getting more progressive. But rural areas and towns mm -hmm. are becoming less and less progressive. Um, and I think that's largely because young people don't stay in them because there's not as many jobs. And I don't think I've seen anything in this election that shows that Labour has managed to reverse that trend or kind of deal with that trend in any way. And I um, I think it's it's still going, that trend, in spite of them sort of burning lots of bridges in order to attract these kind of voters in rural areas and towns. I mean, very specifically, they did not get these voters, right? Places like Hartlepool, like kind of backslid, or uh, folks were saying that, you know, that they actually got fewer votes in these communities than Jeremy Corbyn did in 2018. So I think you could argue that these, again, these voters who you're saying they're burning all this political capital to get, they didn't even manage to get any of them. So it really does seem like a futile exercise. Yeah, like they did make gains in some places. Um, I can't remember which ones, but they did like Cumberland, although that's a new council, but they won that. And, um... and you feel like that's representative of this sort of, you know, former kind of red wallish working class description? Yeah, 
Yeah, I would say. And then also, like, I mean, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't remember all, there's been so many seats. that I've And you all name them crazy like. things, so we understand, yeah. Yeah. But, like, for example, Sheffield. So Sheffield was, uh, that's a northern, it's like a, I can't think of an American equivalent of Sheffield for your listeners, but basic, for your viewers, but basically it's like, um, it's a former, like, where, like a, um, where there's been like working a town with a strong working class identity and there's like a lot of former mining communities there and it's kind of semi-rural so it's on the on the borders of a national park um and sheffield was a target seat for labor so what that will mean is that they spent more on ads there mm -hmm. they flooded it with canvases and popular mps or well-known mps and they didn't win it um which i think is kind of worrying um so, yeah, I think basically I think they they did have quite a good election, Labour. But I, I yeah, I don't think they've done enough um, to justify their strategy. I think their strategy is quite high risk. I don't really understand it. Um, I don't understand their rationale. Um, and I don't think these I think these elections suggest that it's not paying off. Necessarily. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, I, but I think it's also these kind of results that are kind of bleh, neither here nor there. Also, don't have people asking tough questions of the strategy of leadership. Like, no one's really going to be asking Keir Starmer, I think, tough questions about this. Although, I could be wrong. Maybe you all are more analytical than we are in the U.S. about these things. But I mean, we see the hangover of uh, of our last few elections and. Sort of now we have a trend on TV where it's a cool contrarian thing to say to be Democrats are going to do bad in midterms as we think they are, which is a lie. That is not true. They are going to do extremely poorly. Would you agree, Julia Doubleday? Yeah, I also think that trend maybe died down a little bit in recent weeks. Like that was definitely a thing I was hearing um, from, I think mostly from operatives, I think to a degree, I'm not sure those people even believe that it's more of a, just like try to control the narrative thing or it's a denial thing. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't see any way that the Democrats can come back from the place they're in. Roe v. Wade actually could be something of a, a motivator to get mm -hmm. the Democrats out for sure. So, I mean, if anything, that as horrific as it is in terms of electorally, it may save their ass in the midterms. Um, but I'm not convinced that, that that's even enough because I think for a lot of people, they feel like this is horrific. The Democrats have every branch of government and they're doing nothing. So why is that motivating me to come out and vote right. Democrat? Now, the boomers who have just been buying this bullshit for decades, that's not their perspective. They're like, well, we just have to get out and vote harder. But for younger people, um, we know that they could end the filibuster tomorrow. We know that they could encode Roe v. Wade into law tomorrow. They're choosing Obama to promised do it. to do and it in uh, 2008. Obama promised to do it in 2008, and he had a supermajority, yeah. and he had the ability to do it. Yeah. And then he said, I'd rather focus on things that aren't so controversial. So that's why we are where we are. Um, the Democrats have been fundraising on they're going to take away your right to choose for decades. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, anytime they had power, they never took the steps necessary to encode it into law. They never did what they said that they would do. And so it can go either way. On the one hand, like, yes, older voters who are and, and people who are just desperate to pull out the stops to do whatever they can to stop this from happening, which I definitely empathize with. 
um, are going to come out and vote for Democrats, but there's a lot of other people that feel like you've lied to us so many times, you have the power to do it, show us that you're going to do it or go fuck yourself because, um, you know, right now there's basically two votes holding up killing the filibuster according to what we know there may be other people hiding yeah there's two or three behind them i think who like enjoy not having to answer so so with mansion and cinema it's like well what can we possibly do about mansion and cinema the entire weight of the party should be on them nobody's even pressuring them biden literally a couple days ago said he doesn't want to comment on the filibuster i mean can you imagine the inverse case where um, you know, some Republican is holding up Trump's agenda with their one vote. Trump would be on Fox News 24 hours a day calling this guy a loser. Pervert. He'd be in their district as well, right? He'd be He'd working be in their it. district. Yeah. He would be picking their opponent. He would be like, you're out because I have power in the party. And when Bernie did that and to right- Manchin, all the Democrats pressured him to cut it out, which was, I thought, also right. extremely late. Exactly. Yeah. Um, we also know that the Republicans are going just no holds barred against Madison Cawthorn for a comment he made about how he's been invited to cocaine orgies by the Republicans <laughs> ever since he made that comment. Everyone was kind of like, eh, he wants a lot of attention, who knows? But ever since he made that comment, there's been constant drip, drip releases of incriminating. Yeah, he's in trouble. Um, he's in trouble. I mean, they released a bunch of like, very fucking weird. I personally think it's fratty shit, but like sexually inappropriate fratty shit. People um, just trying him. to embarrass him and hurt him because he like went against the party. And, and, but it's true, right? There's consequences. It's just goes to show like there are things the party can do. And I happen to know that when you run, the party asks for a self oppo file on, you know, on yourself, collect everything that we could find so that we know what we're going to be dealing with if this comes up. I call it the, the self-blackmail file. Uh, no, I'm not going to ever fucking do that for the D-trip because if they have that information, they completely control you. So You also yeah. saw what um, can happen with that information when J.D. Vance's campaign by accidentally put it uh, in a file dump with a bunch of other things that they made public, thereby making their own opposition file public, which is mm. definitely not smart politics. Mm. Well, that also happened with the WikiLeaks. Um, in Hillary's emails, there was specifically an email that had a document attached that was all of the things Clinton said in closed door private speeches that would be bad if they got out and they put them all in one place in one document. And it's like, you guys are stupid. (laughs) Why would you do that? Like just making promises to donors to, uh, to donors. Basically economically regressive stuff, right? Like, like promises to shareholders. Well, no, and also saying like, yeah, like we we may have one position in public and one in private that's different. You know, like we may say we're for these social policies, but like don't worry about it essentially. Like that's not going to happen. Um also making derogatory comments about environmentalists and talking about how they just need to get a life and um so just a bunch of stuff that is exactly who I think Hillary Clinton is as as a person, but for the propagandized masses who consume a really happy uh, feminist icon version of her that would be very out of step with their idea of what Hillary Clinton is which is not a power hungry 
um, sociopath. <laughs> I, I will say, you know, talking about Repro again, just really quick, and we, we actually talk about it later in the show, but uh, Liz Winstead was supposed to come on the show today to talk about it. Nothing to do with the Roe v. Wade case, just because, just because it was so, mm. it's been so bad in America, and even with Roe v. Wade in place. Right. It was such a symbolic thing for Democrats, because actually the power that Republicans have to stop people from having abortions is at the state level is the parking lot and the clinic isn't big enough. Right. Like they just it's a death by a thousand cuts. So it's not like Americans had access to abortion to begin with. I mean, Ellie, when you look at this from the outside, I mean, is this does this seem shocking or it's just like, yeah, Americans are America ing? No, it was shocking. I'm, I'm in a WhatsApp group of like a bunch of my female friends and we were all talking about it that day. It was like, you know, it's just upsetting, isn't it, as a woman, wherever you are, like to see the sort of world's biggest economy do something like that is like quite scary. And um, the Times newspaper uh, wrote an editorial agreeing with the decision as well, which which mm. was kind of worrying. and. You know, in this country, I'm sure I've talked about it um, here before, we have this kind of um, anti-trans movement, yeah. like very, very, a lot, lot of transphobia. It and it's yeah. yeah, and it's mainly coming from women who claim to be progressive who say that trans people are a threat to women's rights. Um, so it's not, we don't, we're not, it's not really coming from the extreme right as it is in, in the US or the, like, the Republican Party or evangelical Christians. It's coming from so-called feminists. But those feminists are um, in communication with and in many cases being financially supported by the same people in the US that are taking abortion away mm. from, from the people who need it. And so I think um, there is a fear here that any gains made in kind of dismantling the rights of trans people will be sort of transferred over to mm. also get rid of the right to abortion. So there's one specific example of this, which is called, I don't, I'm going to get it wrong here. It's called Gillick Competence. And it's basically this, uh, this sort of like understanding in the NHS about what you're allowed to consent to as a young person and like where you're sort of seen as competent to be able to consent and where you're not. And so basically a lot of transphobes have been trying to say that young people are not able to consent to be given puberty blockers when they're transgender. But because they're questioning this law of Gillick competence, what that means is that um, any person under a certain age who wants an abortion might not be able to get one. Totally. So it does have these exactly like knock-on effects. I, I think yeah. that's what people worried about here but also you know in Northern Ireland there's a total ban on abortion still mm. um, and I don't think we talk about that enough in, in the UK we often look at what America's doing but we don't actually look at what our own country's doing so I mean you know if Sinn Féin gets in the local elections maybe that'll herald a change but you know I don't know whether that will come like uh, I mean we did see the big that. yes campaign in the Republic of Ireland I mean um, it's so I think a lot of us feel like oh so Ireland's fine. You know, the UK seems okay. We don't actually think of uh, Northern Ireland as being as being as distinctive as it is actually was something I hadn't even thought about. Yeah, yeah, it's, you know, it's bad. But yeah, no, we were very like, it's not been a good, good thing. Like, it's good, good week for women here. I think there's been a lot is of a, shock. Is abortive um, care a normal part of the NHS? Do you have to go to a special division of the NHS or do you just see, uh, the, like, is there, 
is there any way that there is a sort of reproductive rights ghetto inside the NHS where it somehow is treated differently, or is it really truly just part of the system? So I haven't had an abortion, but I have had a friend who has, and I went with her to, to get it done. And I think, I think, yeah, she was referred by her doctor, and then she just went to the NHS, and then she was given, like, a pill, and then you take it once, and then, like, 12 hours later, you take another one. And then, like, it, it, it's sort of a chemical abortion. It creates, And I think, yeah, I think, I think that was the... Um, uh, that that was within the NHS. But just to say that in this country, abortion is actually technically illegal. It's just there's exemptions based on mental health grounds or, like, safety mm. grounds. And oh. the culture is such that all abortions get granted, really, on mental health grounds. But technically it's but not legal here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, I don't... It, like, there's been a, lots of campaigns to get it decriminalised, and I don't recall it being decriminalized so i think that is still the case but yeah so you i think you still have to have your abortion approved by two doctors here yeah um so it's a bit of a funny area because we have quite late term abortions as well so we have like 24 weeks is the cutoff point here um which like a tiny tiny proportion of abortions happen that late like most <laughs> of them are because there's something wrong and, and the, yeah. it's a matter of life and death most abortions happen like pretty quickly after the woman becomes pregnant um and yeah and you know if you want one in this country you can get one like without any problems but it so it is strange that it's sort of matched up with this kind of that it be it not being strictly legal and that you needing two doctors to um to say like, they're yes. still shining a light and there's something sort of special and less desirable about this kind of medical uh, attention in a way. Yeah, yeah, the, it, yeah, yeah. And of course there's like, um, I mean, we don't have an evangelical movement like in the US. Like, it's, I mean, it's nothing like what you have, but like, it doesn't have as much money and power. Um, it, it isn't really part of our political parties, but of course there are churches that um that do try and intervene um you know they provide counseling some of your anti-abortion protesters started picketing our clinics a few years ago and you know <laughs> at my doctor's surgery i saw a kind of anti-abortion poster in the reception once and i like insisted that they take it down um so there is a bit of that but it, i would be uh, exaggerating if i said it was on the same level as the u.s because it definitely they're just isn't. tourists these crazy evangelicals they have their fetus stars with them wherever they go you know they're going to puerto rico yeah, they yeah. take oh it you know God, they're going to they're hawaii jazz, they're going to london or... whatever it is they just you know <laughs> yeah and the tiny tiny plastic models of babies that's like they sort of show you that and it's no good yeah it's no good yeah uh speaking of no good uh julianne you tell me exactly the thing, but you texted me something that was sort of horrible. Maybe you tweeted it before. I don't know, but I've been texting and tweeting so many horrible. No, I know, but this was the simple math where it was like, you know, where it was people revaluing sure. the deaths, and it was like, actually, if you do the math, there's yes, no receding, will, there's no getting worse. COVID. I will okay, help you and all of the American people and the American press. Yeah, simplify this. Make it as simple as you did in that thing with COVID. Because, unfortunately, our press has completely abdicated their responsibility to hold Biden accountable for this pandemic. And we are now arguably worse off than we were a year ago. So here's the reality. We just hit one million Americans dead of COVID. One million in 25 
months. Um, when I said that at least a million people would die of COVID, I was treated as crazy by every person. Nobody who called me crazy for that is going to come around and listen to me now. They're still going to call me crazy. But I was right. And Dr. Fauci's prediction, 100 to 200,000 max, was really fucking wrong. So if you look at these deaths, 400,000 people had died when Biden took office. The reason I specifically remember this is because Biden and Harris decided to have a... Mission accomplished party. Uh, yeah. No, not a mission accomplished party. A modeling um, crocodile tear ceremony on the mall the night before inauguration to honor. Oh, I forgot 400, about that. 400,000 Americans that unnecessarily died under Trump that. because of his botched pandemic response. They all got up there, they all cried, and they all pretended to give a shit. Um, and now we've hit a million deaths. You want to know how much they're acknowledging? Forget the fucking ceremony on the mall for the 600,000 people that they've killed. There's not even a mention of it on his Twitter anywhere. He did a public speech yesterday where he wanted to talk about inflation. We're in full on pandemic denial mode, like hit the gas on that shit because we have no fucking plan. And the press is helping them out every, every step of the way. So here are the numbers. 400,000 people died under Trump in 10 months, average of 40,000 people per month. Obviously, that goes up and down depending on where we are in the wave, but average 40,000 deaths per month. Biden has been in office for 15 months. 600,000 people have died. That's 40,000 people per month. Every single month of the pandemic, 40,000 people, 40,000 people. The Americans average doesn't change. Died. Yeah, that's what sort of, yeah, that's the. Biden has not reduced deaths at all. It's not just that deaths didn't stop, they never changed. He has done nothing. And if you look at the vaccine resistance, which is another thing they're refusing to acknowledge, in Omicron, which they told us was mild, which was not mild, there is a new study out yesterday uh, that is currently being peer-reviewed that showed that Omicron is just as motherfucking deadly as the early variants. Now, how did it get labeled mild when there wasn't enough really time stuck. yet to study whether or not it... Yeah, whether or not it was because people wanted to believe it and because the entire press was pushing it. Um, it really stuck. And where it came from was a bunch of journalists who didn't understand the data, who were comparing um, rates of hospitalizations with uh, rates of cases that were happening on the same day, even though there's a two week gap between those numbers. So when you have cases on this day, they have no relationships to the hospitalizations or deaths that happen on the same day. They have a relationship to hospitalizations that happen two weeks later, and they have a relationship to deaths that happen three weeks later. Nobody at the New York Times can apparently understand this because they've been reporting it this way over and over again. They're still reporting it this way. Cases are going up, but hospitalizations are low. That means hospitalizations are decoupled from cases. This is a very, very basic error in interpreting this data. They've been doing it for months, and yet they're still getting treated like some sort of um, public health uh, service that we should be going to. These are journalists. They're journalists, and they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. So that mild uh, name that they put onto it, not only is it going to turn out that it wasn't just slightly less mild, it, it wasn't anything. It was just fucking COVID. And they are putting people in situations where they're incorrectly assessing their risk. So now let's move on to the vaccine resistance. In the Omicron wave, which they, they claimed was not going to be deadly, about 200,000 people have died of Omicron so far, an incredibly deadly wave. 40% of the 
of those deaths were vaccinated people. Now, the Washington Post finally did an expose about this this week, and people were angry to see it. Mm -hmm. They were like, well, this doesn't account. This is oversampling bias. This doesn't account for the fact that so many more people are vaccinated. And it's like, yes, that's true. Read into the article and they talk about that. It doesn't mean the vaccine doesn't work at all. It means that you still have a 12 time. I think it's like 12 times more likely to be hospitalized or die um, if you're unvaccinated. So, of course, get vaccinated. But if you think it's a fucking acceptable outcome, a fucking acceptable way to be with this pandemic where 200,000 people die in every wave and 40% of them are vaccinated, we're right back at fucking square one. We're not back to square one, actually. We're halfway there. And as we continue to drop every public protection, ignore every public health advice, as we continue to allow unmitigated spread, we are creating super variants that are becoming more and more and more vaccine resistant. So Delta was more vax resistant than Alpha, obviously. Omicron was more vax resistant than Delta. The new Omicron is more vax resistant than the last Omicron. And all of them are more contagious than the previous ones. So this, the pandemic is over. It's based on motherfucking nothing. It's based on nothing. And every time I try to talk to people about this, they look at me like I'm crazy because they've been so socialized to feel like it's over. But if you have a counter argument, go look at the numbers and explain to me what the fuck the counter argument is. Because I think the counter argument is I'm sick of it and I'm in denial. The reality I mean, that's is that's for sure the counter argument to it. It just happens to be more powerful <laughs> than, you know, in some ways we want to give it credit for. Right. The White House Correspondents Dinner was yes. last week. And we all said this is a super spreader event. They put 3,000 unmasked people Even in Fauci a crowded was like, room. I ain't going there. What are you talking Fauci about? Fauci refused yeah. to go the same day that he said the pandemic phase was over because he knew it was good for him. Uh, Biden went, although he wouldn't stay for the dinner to try to <laughs> reduce risk, although he was up there speaking with no mask on. This None is of sort of people, airplane logic reporters. where they're you're the, like, it's okay as long as I'm drinking yeah. alcohol. They're the, people, <laughs> yeah. they're the people who are supposed to be telling us what's going on with the pandemic. They're the yucking adults, it yeah. up with Joe Biden about how specifically they joked about how they're at a super spreader event. I, I actually, I actually want to put a thing. I think it's worse than that in a way. No, it's, I mean, look, you're, it's epidemiologically it can't be worse than, than you say. But I mean, the communications, it used to be, yeah, what are you going to do? Or we're doing everything. But the, the rise in openly hostile uh, talking about other countries, specifically China, still wanting to pursue a zero COVID policy lockdown. Like we see these insane articles. They're shooting people's dogs, like all these things. Like, uh, Ellie, is that also happening? Or Julie, I mean, feel free to react. You know what I'm saying? But this is this is Let happening, me, right? Like you see these articles. I just want to finish. I want to finish my thought about White House Correspondents Center, which is that they made a big deal about how they had tested everyone. First of all, the rapid tests don't work very well anymore. We know that. Secondly, they often don't work until three or four days into your symptoms. We know that as well. But they're, again, ignoring science, the thing they promised they weren't going to do. Then at the, at the dinner itself, they said every single person was tested. They said that over and over again. And then somebody mentioned, well, the staff wasn't tested. All of the staff serving them the entire night, walking That's around, bananas. no masks, between all the tables. True? They were, yes, they were never tested because Iran, they're servants. They don't get tests. They're not human beings. So really a great case of just fucking, I don't know, karma. Like, you didn't give these people tests. Now, obviously, as we expected, cases are popping up from all over the oh, White yeah, House yeah, Correspondents' yeah. Dinner. 
We don't know if Biden got it. It's perfectly possible that he did, but if he didn't get it this time, he'll get it another time. Um, you know, the entire press has now been exposed through this irresponsibility. Um, and this is not, this is just the new normal, right? Um, you know, at the, at the dinner, they're, they're joking about, you know, willingly being at a super spreader event. And it's like, okay, you're willingly there. The way they're covering it is, oh, that was their choice. They're willingly there. Are the workers willingly there or do they just need to get paid? Are the families of workers who may be immunocompromised consenting to be, um, you know, infected by Kim Kardashian and her boyfriend? Like, no, this is not how public health works. None of these people who have to be around you consent to your bullshit lack of um, just being so Also, it just literally happened at the Gridiron so, Dinner, which Ellie is another one of these stupid dinners that they have, like, you know, which was like last month right. where everybody who was there got COVID, including uh, Kamala Harris's husband and stuff. So it's. it's and the last thing, I, I promise is the last thing, but the last thing I want to say about the Biden COVID response, along with denying, now being in complete denial about the death rate, denial about the vaccine resistance, which is bringing us squarely back to the beginning of the pandemic, that we're destroying the effectiveness of the vaccine at a very, very rapid pace. Uh, oh, denial of long COVID, 10% of cases have long-term, even lifelong debilitating effects. It affects every organ in your body, from your brain to your stomach, to your heart. You can have a heart attack after you have it. You can have a stroke after you had it. All of these things are not things that happen with the flu, and they're not happening uncommonly. One study found that brain damage was noticed in 25% of people who had had COVID of any severity. So don't you think it would be good to figure out whether that's an issue before we pursue a policy of forced mass infection? Not once, because you can get it again at the earliest three weeks, but generally around three months after you've had it, you can get it again. Do you think it's good to get a virus that gives you brain damage three times a year for the rest of your life? Do you think you're gonna be doing well with that in 10 years when you've had it 30 times and you've never fully had time to recover from the damage it does to your system? So putting that aside, the other issue is the testing. Um, they're suppressing the testing. In January, they announced that they would allow hospitals to stop reporting data to HHS and myself, a lot of disability activists, a lot of um, doctors online were raising the red flag. This is very bad. They're unwinding testing. It's always bad when they try to bury data. And the only thing the media and the press thought to do um, was to publish a bunch of articles about how this was misinformation. Because even though it's true that they were getting rid of that metric and they were unwinding that data, there are other sources of data. So the data is redundant. And it's like, well, if you have two working brain cells, you understand that as you unwind testing, you don't cancel every single uh, piece of data collection on the same day. You do it slowly behind the scenes. So that's exactly what happened. In February, a lot of the federal requirements were relaxed. Now I'm in DC. The DC itself was now supposed to be reporting their cases and hospitalizations and deaths daily. They said, oh, we're not gonna do that. We'll, we'll just do it weekly. We'll give you like a community spread number. We'll do it once a week. It's day nine, no reporting. I have not seen any numbers from DC since April 27th, I think. The wastewater data site, which is supposed to be the last place that you can check to see where cases are in your city, hasn't been updated since April 27th. Now, why is this relevant to vulnerable people? I live in a house with three people. 
One of them plays a live show in a band with no mask every Wednesday. And previously, I had been able to talk him out of performing on nights when cases were high in D.C. This week, I have no data to show whether cases are high or low, so he played the show. This is exactly the kind of situations where people are getting forced into unsafe situations. They're getting forced to go to work. They're getting forced to go to school. They're getting forced to be exposed to other people because we don't even have the data to to protect ourselves or make our own health decisions or advocate for ourselves. So at the end of the day, this isn't a policy of choose for yourself. It's a policy of forced infection. We have no choices. We have no data. And Trump never would have gotten away with the amount of just COVID cover-up that's happening right now. I have no way to know what COVID is doing in my city, and neither does anyone else. Ellie, do you think there's the same, like, uh, level of engagement, like, with COVID in the UK right now? Or have people, like, in Europe, we're kind of in a weird numbers are going down, but not as, not as far down as they should. And some people are saying they may be about to come up again. I don't know how you all are off the continent. So it's, it's a bit different here um, to the US. So, um, well, first of all, things are just totally back to normal here. Um, like, oh, things are back to normal here. I was not saying they're not back to normal. I'm saying people are brainwashed as fuck because the death toll is not back to normal. It's just their behavior that's back to normal. I think, I think, um, from like, I support Britain not shutting down for the simple reason that I think if because of the scandals about all of our politicians ignoring lockdown, I think. If there was a lockdown here, we would just see mass civil disobedience. I just think people would people mm. were already growing sick of lockdown. They were growing sick and tired of the pandemic. We were like two years in, eighteen months in, and then two things happened at the same time. Which is there was a huge story that it turned out the government had just been breaking all the rules all the time. That was the first thing, and then the set, and then the second thing was that Omicron, Omicron was discovered, and there was like talk of another lockdown and i think those two things kind of coalesced in people's minds and just made them kind of very resistant to any kind of restriction so i think i think we would see kind of mass civil disobedience in this country if there was another lockdown now particularly after people are vaccinated so that's why i'm not in favor of it um i don't think it would be effective um and there's, it's slightly different. The history of COVID is slightly different here because we had a really strict lockdown almost straight away. I mean, we didn't have it soon enough. The government dragged its heels for two weeks, which really allowed COVID to spread around. But but then we had a really strict lockdown from like March until like maybe the end of May, like quite a long time, maybe even June. Um, that was like really strict. And, you know, uh, people w were like not... You know, they weren't even sitting in each other's gardens. You know, they were sort of like... There was a, a whole phase where people were not allowed to sit down in a public park alone. And the police would literally come over and, like, move them on. And what that means... And there's also, like, a, a lot of evidence that the, these kind of emergency laws that were passed in order to enforce that lockdown have been, of course, been abused by police to, to sort of be racist, basically. And that a lot of fines were imposed on people that maybe that they shouldn't have been... And also that, um, you know, some people, like, maybe they had a partner that they'd been with for decades and they weren't allowed to see them in their final moments and say goodbye to them, you know, these kind of things. And what that has meant is that the left in this country um, has been, like, very divided. There's been, like, 
and then I would say the liberal, like the left spectrum, mm. the progressive spectrum. You know, there's some people who are, you know, they really want strict lockdown. Um, you know, they tend to always call for that, whatever the numbers say, um, whatever the situation is. Um, and those people have exaggerated data a few times, actually. Um, there's a group called Independent Sage, which is like Sage is the um, the uh, commission that advises mm -hmm. the government on lockdown. And Independent Sage is this like independent group of scientists who've come together to kind of provide advice that they feel is less compromised. And, and some of the stuff they've put out has been a bit dodgy. So there's them. But then there's also like, uh, yeah, this constituency on the left that's quite anti-lockdown because they think that it obscures like wider social questions like we need to adapt to COVID by having massive public health investment, by, um, by uh, giving people proper sick pay, um, you know, that kind of thing, by like generally making people more healthy. You know, which I agree with, and I and agree with, especially in this country, in the sense that like the genie is out of the bottle now. That we can't, we're not going to get rid of COVID in this country. I just don't think that's going to happen. However, that section of the left, I feel, has called things wrong because there's been certain moments where there's been like a crunch point, you know, where we know that the 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 line is going to go up, and really at that point, the, the government has left it so late that the only viable response to stop the health system collapsing is a lockdown, and that part of the left will still oppose a lockdown even though you know there's not really any other it's way, actually the crisis other... where the only thing that addresses it is that right yeah exactly because it's the crisis is too imminent so so basically like yeah so the left is quite divided it's definitely not as like i feel like the the american left from what i can see is much more unified on the sense that there needs to be restrictions whereas here like that isn't no I would say Americans really have broadly just that's given up. True. Sorry, go that's ahead, not Julie. true. Americans, Americans are in denial, and like so. I mean, the left back sorry. Up also, including not even the left. People, people I know, people who have been very following the science every step in the, of the way, they're just tired of it. But I posit that being tired of it is very much a result of the media landscape that you're in and if you're in a le le media landscape that for the last year has told you it's mild now it's the flu everyone's gonna get it you're gonna be fine without any discussion of the vaccine resistance which is getting worse by the way and will continue to get worse without any discussion of the fact that vulnerable people, disabled people, older people are still dying at the same numbers. Like these numbers haven't changed. 40,000 Americans dead every month forever is not a solution. So like whatever the solution is, whether it involves lockdowns or not, what I'm trying to get out there is the actual information of what's happening because people don't know that information. The first step before we make decisions is for people to understand what's happening. And when you talk to people about Biden, they think that he's done something about the pandemic. He hasn't. That's what the math shows. 40,000 people a month are dying. That's more than a typical flu season. And they're not all older people. So we can't go on like that forever. I'm sorry, like lockdowns are, are maybe unfeasible. Killing 40,000 people every month is not feasible. It's insane. And people just want to bury their head in the sand about it. But there's so many things between lockdown, total lockdown, and doing anything. I mean, what needs to happen during surges, masks indoors. That's the only thing I'm doing. I wear a mask when I'm indoors. When I'm outdoors, I socialize with my friends outside. When I'm indoors, I wear a mask. 
and I haven't gotten COVID. That's basically the only thing you need to do to significantly cut community spread. But people are just so horrified by this idea and they also equate it to lockdown. I'm sorry, having to wear a mask indoors in a public space during a pandemic that's killing 40,000 people a month is not a big ask. And if you want to see your friends, sit on the patio that's five feet away. I mean, the only situation I can think of where my life has changed significantly is when I want to go drink all night and go to a club and like be out late and have my mask off indoor drinking. I can't do that during a surge, although I can do it during the three quarters of a time that there's not a surge. Um, but you know, if that's your biggest motherfucking priority in life, more so than not letting 40,000 people die a month, go get fucking counseling because like, that's just not my biggest priority. I don't give a fuck. Go to your fucking club the next month because these waves are, they're pretty short. I mean, they're a month to six weeks where there's really, really high risk of exposure. So I would also point out that like, because of the severe need that people have for this to be over and to pretend that we're in a completely different situation now, um, people push back on my boundary, which is literally just, I'm gonna wear a mask indoors, that's it. I'm still gonna see you. I socialize all the time. People want me to be unmasked indoors the same way that Republicans wanted Democrats to be unmasked indoors at the beginning. It's very mm -hmm. much like, this is making me uncomfortable. I don't like that you're doing this. And to me, it's like, there's something psychological underlying that where it's like, I need to prove the pandemic is over. And that can only be done if you stop shoving it in my face that it's not. And, you know, even even if COVID were just the flu, which it's not, but let's just do some a little intellectual experiment. COVID's the flu. When I get the flu, I tend to get sick for two to three weeks and it's very miserable. If I had the choice between sitting in a restaurant and I know there's a really good chance I'm gonna get the flu and sitting five feet away on the patio, I know that I'm not gonna get the flu. Why would it be so hard to understand that I'm gonna sit on the patio? That's fucking rational. So like people calling everything lockdown, people saying like, oh my gosh, like this is so bad. You, you know, you're wearing a mask indoors. It's like, I thought we were gonna follow the science. The science fucking says this shit isn't over. And like, if the Biden administration didn't understand that, why are they going out of their way to suppress testing and to suppress data that people can use to protect themselves? Because right now we don't have reporting in DC. Like I mentioned, it's been nine days and there's no accountability. No journalists are saying, Hey, didn't you guys say you're going to put out this information once a week, even though that was already a bare minimum. I have no idea what's happening in my city. The bare minimum the Biden administration can do for us is give us the information we need to make reasonable choices for ourselves, which was which was supposed to be, you know, the far right version of how to deal with this. Anyway, everyone assesses their own risk. I can't assess my own risk right now. But secondly, if people want to not be responsible for the continuing death of 40,000 people every month, just wear a mask inside. It's not that fucking big a deal. It's been a public service announcement from the Double Day Society. No, no, it's important. It's like, you know, it is, it's just about what we value because the only thing that I would like, and I've said it to you before, is you're like, it's unsustainable to have 40,000 people die a month. I, I want to put should. It should be unsustainable, but it's not either communications wise, it's not physically. We can handle this psychologically. This amount of death is something that is palatable. Well Psychologically, to, to maybe, but work, generally, workforce, workforce-wise, economy-wise, 
This is why people are fucking losing their mm. shit and why inflation is off the charts. All of these things are related and they're refusing to connect them. But you can't kill a million workers every couple years and have that not affect your economy. Like, obviously, a million yeah. excess deaths, more than a million excess deaths, because we know we're undercounting. One is reminded of the enclosure movement after the Black Plague in Britain. It's going to be great for workers. The ones that survive and don't get disabled, it's going to be great. We're, you know, hopefully me, if I'm there, will be commanding a much higher salary. But you're going to see a lot of angry New York Times articles about how horrible it is that workers are asking for stuff. But a bunch Shouldn't of op-eds so in the people. future. Hey, let's do a culture one next time. All right, this was dark. You know, we should do another culture yeah. one next time. Let's think about that. I really love the yellow jacket. Yeah, people one. people responded well to it, actually. Um, Oh, good. So, what should we what should we watch next? Um, I wouldn't mind watching. I've um, oh, so oh, maybe one thing I would like to watch but haven't got around to yet is the dropout about. The I haven't watched things. it, and Julie's it's been good. pushing me it's to watch good. it. So, is it well, good? It's, it's actually it's okay. Here's the thing. It's not. It's not really good. Oh my God! Save it's it, Drew. Save your analysis for when we do it on the show. And and Amanda Seyfried is amazing yeah, yeah. and. Yeah, so it's worth watching for that. Like, I think it would be like a middle of the road show if it weren't for Amanda Seyfried, and um, and the guy that plays Sunny is also really good, Naveen Andrews. Yeah. Oh yeah, I like him. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's loads of posts on Reddit that like of people who were like, um, you know, right. You know, there's like advice pages on Reddit. There's loads of posts of people being like. I was interviewed, you know, that, that are starting to come up now, like from sort of 10 years ago when people, people were like, I've been shortlisted for this job for this tech company, but the interview process was really weird and I'm getting a funny vibe. Should I go for it or not? And then like 10 years later, they were like, yeah, that's Theranos. That was Theranos. It's like, oh my God. Yes. Okay. That's the plan. We have a plan. This is going to be fun. <laughs> okay, great. Good. That means because I've been, I've been um, lobbying Matt to watch it for ages and now I can say I have to watch it for work. So. Yeah, that's how I've been tricking your run into watching a lot of stuff. He has to watch Independence Day next. Yes. Oh, happy post-May Day, y'all. As a Brit, I have to say I love the bit where the Brits are for some reason in a bunker and they're like, bloody good show the Yanks got involved. <laughs> it's like Colonel Blimp pops out of some oh, yeah. place, you know. They, like, they go out yeah. around the world and like half the people are like in huts like, the Americans, they figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Lord, I'm in good for stuff. a lot of treats. It's, it's I'm just... in for a lot of treats. 90s, 90s, 90s. <laughs> Okay, Aaron, four minutes to go. Okay. Mommy made me mash my Mayday M&M's. <sighs> Mommy made me mash my Mayday M&M's. This is, this is how I warm up. This is how we I warm like up. I like the mantra. And Papa, of course, made us mash our post-Mayday M&M's. What did, you, what did you end up doing for Mayday? How was your Mayday? it was it was great I um you know I love I love Mayday you know I'm I'm of course a pagan so um 
I huh. have a lot of fun uh, for May Day. <laughs> um, is that, does and- that what does that involve for our for, for maybe we can talk to talk to folks about that? Is that does that is that going to involve like a poll? Yeah, yeah. It involves like fires and poles and orgies and kind of like a whole bacchanal for for the spring. And 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 do do we know the clear line? I don't mean to get you into doing show stuff before the show even starts. Do we know the clear line between this what you're describing, uh, and you know the kind of sensible you know labor socialist holiday that people like me like to celebrate? Right, right. Well, I think that you know you can kind of combine the two. Um, they both have very long and important histories, and so. I would see nothing wrong with a kind of mix-up socialist pagan Labor Day celebration. I'd be into that. Yeah, I've always thought of myself as a socialist with squeamish characteristics. I think that's how they described it. I think it's how Joe and Lai described it. This is the Global News Rodeo with Arun Chowdhury and Forrest Lovett. Hi, and welcome back to the committee program. I am your host, Tarun Chaudhary, and now your Global News Rodeo, a roundup of world events as curated by the show's own Forrest Levette. Let's go. Item one, a hard Labor's Day night. Labor wins in London, but still lags behind. The Socialist Workers reporting that the Labor Party won a series of local elections this Friday. The victories were in London districts, most notably the Wandsworth district, which was taken from the Tories for the first time in 44 years. Uh, side note, famously, that's Margaret Thatcher's favorite district. I, I don't know exactly why. Uh, we can ask Ellie Mayo Hagen in a minute. Labor is also expected to win Westminster Council for the first time since its inception in 1964. Observers said the voters were rejecting Boris Johnson's lies and corruption and channeling their rage at the rising cost of living in the city. However, Labor did worse nationwide in this local election than they did in 2018 with Jeremy Corbyn as the party leader. Some see this as a damning verdict for current Labor leader Keir Starmer. Salford Mayor and Labor member Paul Dennett said the party needs clarity on foreign policy and was quoted saying, we've had years and years of austerity and we're facing costs of living crisis. Now, uh, sorry, facing a cost of living crisis. When we're door knocking, we see people are really frustrated at the moment with the political system. Uh, the other thing that I will say is you also did see a lot of the things, uh, a lot of the votes the Tories lost going to both the Lib Dems and the Greens, which is just not particularly helpful. Item two, SCOTUS, Supreme Conservatives of the United States. Leaked abortion draft looms large. Democracy Now! is reporting on the leaked draft opinion by the United States Supreme Court and their decision to overturn the landmark ruling of Roe v. Wade. In this draft, uh, Justice Samuel Alito wrote Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. If the draft comes to fruition, it would strip away the guaranteed federal constitutional protections for abortion rights, which have been in place since 1973. The leaked opinion says that Justice Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh will join Alito in voting to overturn Roe v. Wade. 13 states have already passed trigger laws that will go into effect immediately if these conservative justices have their way. These states are among 26 states in total that are expected to enact a complete ban on abortion as soon as legally possible. Speaking to Democracy Now! attorney Catherine Colbert said that the lopsided conservative court poses a threat not only to abortion rights, but to women's rights in general, such as the ability to use contraception, the ability to be sexual with somebody of the same sex, and the ability to marry for same-sex 
couples. Uh, I will say we were actually supposed to have uh, Liz Winstead, a friend of the show, on tonight to speak about repro rights. She is, of course, uh, the executive director of Abortion Access Front uh, and is, you know, an old friend. But that was before all of this happened. And so now she is much, much too busy to come join us. So actually, uh, Holly, Brett and I are going to have a bit more to say about this in a bit. Item three, Sri Lankan shutdown, millions of workers strike. Forrest, I feel like you didn't try with any of these. For any, you know what I mean? None of these have the spark of life. It's fine, and I'm actually really interested to hear what's going on in Sri Lanka because it's been uh, across the whole uh, Indian subcontinent. It's been, there's been a lot going on, but I, just we need a little spark. Item three, Sri Lankan shutdown, millions of workers strike. Deutsche Welle is reporting on workers strike in Sri Lanka that had brought the country to a standstill. Millions of public and private sector workers walked out and took the streets on Friday in protest to the government's mishandling of an ongoing financial crisis. The strike was organized by trade unions and civil organizations waving black flags. The workers called for the resignation of President Gotobaya Rajapaska. Despite the continued pressure to step down, including protesters camped outside his office in the capital, Colombo, Rajabaska continues to ignore demands and relinquish his power. The country is facing its worst financial crisis since it achieved independence in 1948. Last month, the Sri Lankan government was forced to default on its $51 billion in foreign debt after the reserves of U.S. dollars ran out. I mean, look, uh, actually... I don't even want to editorialize on this. I want to bring some people in. We should talk about, we should do a roundup every, because I mean, there's so much going on in Pakistan. There's so much going on, Pakistan. Pakistan or Pakistan. You shouldn't mix those two things together, right? That's that's not what anyone's trying to do. Uh, but, you know, talking about Sri Lanka, talking about Pakistan, talking about India. Uh, I think it's it, there's enough to, to justify us taking an hour trip around and talking to some folks. Item four, and I take it back for us, we're hitting this one really hard, uh, Yeah, and I, and I appreciate you. Item four, hitting on the bong bong. Marcos, a heavy favorite in the upcoming Philippines election. The Guard is reporting that 67.5 million Filipinos will vote on Monday, May 9th, to decide on a new president, along with thousands of other positions, including the vice presidency and the Senate. The clear frontrunner is Ferdinand Bong Bong Marcos, the son of former Philippine dictator Ferdinand Marcos Sr. According to U.S. News, Marcos is currently polling at 56%, far ahead of closest candidate Robrero, the incumbent vice president. After returning from exile, the Marcos family began to rebuild their public image. Bong Bong Marcos won elections for governor, congressman, and senator before running for president. Although departing president Rodrigo uh, Duarte will have a controversial legacy, his party, the Federal Party of the Philippines, is likely to retain its control of the presidency, with Marco also represent, representing the PFP. And why not? Right? And why not? This one is nuts. I mean, the only losers... Here are the Filipinos, uh, which is, which is not great, but this is this is just one for the record books. Ciao and welcome back to our polling update here at the polling channel, brought to you by the committee program. In the German region of North Rhine-Westphalia, the CDU seem on track to edge the SPD, perforce opposing, with the Greens as a significant addition and biggest winner since last elections. The Liberal FDP are the big losers, and in fact, are. Scottish self-determination is caught between two fronts, with Savanta Comrade's polls putting no on independence at 51% and yes at 49. 
Terrible weather in the Philippines per Octopole with strongman Arthrob Marcos dominating the field. He is, of course, the son of um, former strongman Arthrob Marcos. When asked, with the information you have at this time, would you vote to approve or reject the constitution proposed by the Constitutional Convention? In Chile, a small majority of voters are leaning reject at 56%, which is something you should keep an eye on. And a good old-fashioned Roy Morgan poll in Australia has both major parties in a dead heat at 35%. Cynics among you may have feeling about that, but we are simply here to report the weather. And in fact, from the staff here at the polling channel, thank you so much for watching and stay safe out there. And now, committee confessions. Hi, and welcome back to the committee program, and this is Committee Confessions, where we go deep into our souls and let out the primal screams that can only come from things that bang around in the news. And who could be more appropriate guest than Holly Brett, who is the papal and royal correspondent? I feel like this has sort of a pseudo-Catholic feel to it. Yeah, mm -hmm. certainly put that into the credits, so I think it makes sense. Although the reason for the season is pretty shit, which is... The uh, Supreme Court, uh, the, the leaked memo that says that they are intending to strike down Roe v. Wade for our European folks. This is the court case that guarantees the right uh, of people to an abortion. But I do want to say, and this will be the beginning of my confession, and this will then lead into yours, which will include a satirical letter, my favorite form of satire. If you've ever read the, um, uh, the one the person read, which is uh, Herzog writing to his cleaning lady. It's like one of my favorite oh, things that's ever been written. One. Oh my god, yeah, 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 it's so funny. But I, it just make, I just love the genre of of a satirical letter, and so I'm hoping that you'll you'll read it for us on air. But look, it's easy to say, ah, this is the horrible plan of which has been. You know, conservatives have wanted this for all 50 years of Roe uh, to take it down, uh, to do bit by bit. I will say legally. It's one of those win, win the war, lose the peace things that progressives are so good at, you know? It's sort of, you know, you win the right to abortion in Roe v. Wade, but the history of it since then has been very effective uh, grassroots efforts to make things hard, like an abortion clinic has to have a certain size parking lot, right? Just sort of chipping away at the... Um, at what makes actually abortion clinics work and possible, which makes it rarer and rarer. And then the thing that's so horrible, I think maybe specifically I wanted to talk about and come on into the booth and yell about a bit, is that this has sort of been set up by Democrats so complicitly in such sort of obvious ways, right? Losing this messaging war, almost throwing the messaging war right. in a way that's reminiscent of um, law and order stuff, right? You know, it's like, we don't want as many cops and they shouldn't be as bad, but we still want to be tough on crime. This kind of thing, um, you know, people who are, are my age, you know, Janet Snowden will just recall having pounded into our heads by Democrats in the 90s, whether it be Hillary Clinton or other folks, that abortion was tragic and should be made rare. And of course, it should maybe be legal, but we should definitely safe, regulate it. Yeah, and this really, this this sort of pushed in and sort of really fed kind of an entire generation of people being afraid to say the word abortion and to have abortion activists being about anything but abortion. And I would say culminating in some of my real anger in uh, organizations that talk about pro-choice things but are like involving themselves in primaries, say, between two pro-choice candidates like Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, right, both – pro-choice people, why are repro dollars going to this kind of thing instead? And so I, I do think there's just been this sort of 
this abandonment of the messaging war. I mean, is any of that resonant with you? 100%. (laughs) That that all resonates with me. Um, I think that right now, some of the Democratic leadership are acting like this is some huge surprise. Oh my God, Roe's going to fall. As if this plan wasn't being executed completely in the open the entire time for 50 years. And so there's a huge refusal to look at any of the past decades and any of the past failures on on this issue, whether they're they're rhetorical uh, or um, strategic, uh, such as supporting anti-choice candidates in the Democratic Party, which currently they're continuing to do. Uh, Jim Clyburn was just talking yesterday uh, in support of a uh, candidate in a Democratic primary who's anti-choice against a pro-choice yeah, woman candidate. That is right now. That is current. That's today. <laughs> We're not defending 90s politics, something that happened in the 90s here. The current oh, no, yeah, it's, it's true. Right. House leadership right now is that we are a big tent and we uh, uh, making abortion a litmus test is purity politics. And it's some like people like it is known, right? I think this is something everyone in the audience will know that abortion is broadly popular in the U.S. in similar um, ways that it is other places. So this is like an instance of sort of minority opinion capturing majority through political ineptitude, through other things. Uh, But so many Democrats have run these pro-choice campaigns, moderate Democrats even in places like Colorado, and you know have based their entire campaigns on reproductive rights and have never delivered a single legislative win, have never done the equivalent of the parking lot has to be this big. No, the parking lot doesn't have to be that big. <laughs> um, you know, make leaving this up to the courts, some would say, is sort of negligent of a supermajority. Uh, not even just this one. Obama, oh, absolutely. Of course, o- said Obama he was had something. a supermajority and said that uh, with that supermajority, they were going to make it a priority to pass national legislation. And as soon as Obama got into office, they never touched that issue ever again. Uh, so to be clear, they did not try. <laughs> this, is, this is not like, oh, they had a supermajority and they fought the fight and then lost in the final mile and just couldn't get it quite over the edge. No, they just completely abandoned even attempting that fight. And and I think this pretend, this sort of pretend care is what your letter really gets at in such a, in such a, a, a smart, funny way. <laughs> you know, this sort of lack of actual care, yeah. uh, but, but still strident. Um, and I think I will, s- I just wanted to Sorry, comment ahead, on a, two, two things. I think you, you said that I just want to like take a little further actually. Um, uh, Cause they're, they're right on point. So, one thing you mentioned was the uh, just the faith in the courts, right? Like the the idea that like the courts, you know, that's where we find justice and the protection of civil civil liberties. That would be great, <laughs> and maybe people older than me <laughs> have some memories of that happening. Right. But like my first encounter with a Supreme Court decision was was Bush v. Gore. Right. That's like right when I was coming Mm -hmm. of age. So I have a very different view uh, due to due to that. But um, yeah, I just think it's absolutely negligent to have continued to just put faith in the courts as if that's what's going to save us in the end of the day. Well, in real time, we see the the court strategy just completely 
you know, crumbling <laughs> and not being anywhere on our side. Um, and so I think the answer has always been to pass na national legislation. And, uh, you know, frankly, I do feel with national universal legislation, yeah, right? Yeah. For so many things. This is the only thing. Yeah. And yeah, I'm really feeling with the court right now is as they um, smack down <laughs> democratic uh, uh, will and, and, and what we actually want to do. Like, I'm actually feeling like my, my, mm, I almost feel like we should call their bluff, sort of. Like, the mm. Supreme Court's kind of saying the Constitution sucks and doesn't do enough yeah. and, yeah, and yeah, has yeah, yeah. major glaring gaps and problems. And maybe we should kind of, like, call their bluff and be like, yeah, no, you know what? It is, like, power to the people. Like, it should be legislators, uh, you know, passing laws. Like, let's put the court in their place by actually passing the laws that we want and even it's contemplating true. constitutional amendments. We should absolutely be thinking that big uh, as to how we counter. There are answers for how, how you counter a Supreme yeah. Court that has gone way, way off the deep end and is totally overpowered and corrupted. Uh, but, but we just have to take them. And so just sitting there being like, no, it's the courts. <laughs> No, that would be an incredible thing to take. I would say that in similar ways, though, you see an ossification kind of even in progressive world of these kind of too big to fail institutions, right? When something goes wrong, people all start shoveling money like at Move On or something goes wrong. When something goes wrong in the repro world, people shovel money at Planned Parenthood. And I think they don't know that the, the actual reality of abortion, of health care, of abortion health care being provided is done by independent clinics that Planned Parenthood will not do an abortion after 14 weeks, which many people find themselves in a situation in which they do have to have uh, abortion care after 14 weeks, and that there actually is just a very thin veneer of a handful of clinics who are doing this work. Uh, and I would uh, like to direct our viewers to uh, the Abortion Access Force uh, and Abortion Access Front, who are uh, – who are a, a group who really keeps track of this stuff really well. And as you're looking for places that you do want to help and you do want to donate, I would just recommend the folks who aren't afraid to put abortion in their name, right? Talk about centering mm -hmm. abortion. Like let's actually, let's actually yeah, do it. Yeah, 100%. Um, all right. I'm on I, team I don't free wanna, abortion look. on demand. I mean, it's, it's, it's not even that weird and it's not even that new or something, right? This was considered an essential part of human liberation in like, you know, f for now, well over like 200 years, right. you know, this is like been part of the political conversation and it's right. incredible and seeing to see something, the backslide. Right, like so core and foundational to the liberal philosophy and framework, right, just be like cast off as... I mean, I, I feel like the gaslighting right now is like abortion is identity politics and it's, and it's purity politics. Yeah. Like that's the best thing that's a yeah, yeah. And it's like, mm, you're like, no, 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 no. come on. This is fucking material important. and real. Like what, what the fuck? Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh. Uh, could not be more real. Um, yeah. But look on the show, we talk about different ways to communicate. Satire is one of them. You know, I, I do want you to read your excellent letter. <laughs> I do want you to read your excellent letter, which is told in the voice of a D trip fundraising email. Certainly a pinnacle of American political culture. All right. Are you ready for it? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to close All my right. eyes. Urgent action required. Your life is on the line. It's a message from the GCCC. Dear Holly, I wanted to reach out personally about the news of the Supreme Court's leaked decision overturning Roe and the Republican Party's attack on reproductive rights. As the chair of the DCCC, I want to inform you about the Democrats' plan to take on this fight, which we can do only with your support. First, I want to make a few things clear about the nature of the challenge we face. Let me reiterate my public statement following the news of the leaked decision. Democrats, we're angry and hurt, I know. But it is not about the filibuster, the size of the court, or what the Senate hasn't passed. It's about Republicans, not us. We can save our freedoms, but it's November, stupid. Those who think we should take any other stance than complete resignation in the face of the single largest rollback of human rights in, his, in the history of our country are hopelessly naive idiots when it comes to politics, a sophisticated science best handled by our expert political analysts. Anybody criticizing our approach should in fact be suspected as a right-winger who aims to thwart our path to progress. This is nothing to get hysterical about. And we hope that your pretty little head can't connect the dots between our previous neglect on the issue of abortion rights and other fundamental intersecting issues and our current abdication of responsibility to protect our most core values and rights. For example, our failure to pass the Voting Rights Act will make it all the harder to vote and express the democratic will of the country, the people like you whose lives are at stake. Deeply unfair and racist gerrymandered districts that could have been prevented are now already locked in place even if we were to pass legislation now. It's simply too late. This just means you'll have to work extra hard come November, digging deep to help us emerge victorious. We hope this makes you feel ever more inspired to vote and stand up with us as we take on this fight. There's some asking why, with control of the House, Senate, and Presidency, we Democrats will not use every possible recourse to pass national legislation protecting the right to abortion, such as removing the filibuster and passing the whole Women's Health Protection Act. It would be a tragedy and a disgraceful stain on our party's and nation history if Roe were to fall without an answer from Congress under a fully democratic administration. But we must accept this as a fact. It will happen no matter what. And we need to look with optimism ahead to November when there's an opportunity for our party to lose control of both the House and the Senate. This will provide a much clearer path to passing national legislation enshrining the right to abortion than any other vision is amount to daydreaming. We could exert maximum pressure every hour, minute, and second in the lives of Senators Manchin, Cinema, and any others who support a regime of forced birth and the criminalization of pregnant people. But this is out of the question, even though this approach has not yet been tried on any other part of Biden's so far failed agenda. We will make no commitment to running a 50-state strategy to fight in every state house where abortion rights will be determined if there is no national action uh, at this point from Democrats, which you'd presume would be the only backup plan failing action from national Democrats. We will not recruit and run pro-choice candidates in every contested race. What we will do is this. The DCCC and the DSCC will continue to fund anti-choice candidates with the personal support and endorsement of Democratic leadership, including Nancy Pelosi and Jim Clyburn, who are supporting an anti-choice male candidate against a pro-choice woman in a Democratic primary in Texas. Yesterday, Clyburn put it best when he argued that abortion cannot be a political litmus test for inclusion in the party, saying, we have a big tent party. 
And if we're gonna be a big tent party, we got to be a big tent party. Since this is a primary and Democratic leadership could opt to support the pro-choice candidate instead, if the anti-choice candidate wins, Democrats could conceivably win the House in November by one seat, in which case we'd one vote short of being able to take action on abortion rights. This is just another great reason why we need even more Democrats in the House, and we need your support to make it happen. We need you to vote like your life depends on it, because it does. Our strategy will be to wait until the midterm elections, an opportunity to lose our current trifecta in Washington, to whip the votes out of you using this issue as our implement of force. We won't die on this hill, but you might. So we're banking on that fact and asking you to keep it in mind as your motivation to get out the vote come November. Our plan of what we would do if we were to even win in November is TVD to enhance the element of surprise. Faith always requires a little leap. And we're asking you to take this leap with us now as we take on this fight. Remember, your life and freedom is on the line. Tell Republicans now, stop the attack on reproductive rights. Sincerely, Sean Patrick Mahoney, DCCC Chair. Oh, applause, applause, applause. Uh, look, I know you need to get out of character and get back into <laughs> character as the royal and papal correspondent Maybe. because in two segments, that is where we're going to be at. Uh, but I really appreciate you being here with us in the booth. And I really appreciate this piece of writing from me. I think it's hilarious. And uh, maybe send us a text. Maybe we can do a thing where it scrolls while oh, you read. Oh, that would be it great. Be yes, I will send it along. Thanks for having me today. Now, keeping up with the Habsburgs. Full of flavor and ideology, Cadre Cigarettes and you, perfect together and sponsors of the committee program. And now, once again, we have fan favorite Holly Brett and our ongoing saga of a story of Europe's most famous family, Keeping Up with the Habsburgs, in which Holly, who is our uh, continental rail royal not rail royal and papal correspondent we still have openings for our rail correspondent all of you train nerds i like trains too you can't do everything okay you you have you have you've got a beat you've got a good beat just stick to it okay and okay. uh uh and let's let's get back into it i mean i will say i know we took a step into the stone age last time i will say that i am still excited about getting towards the reformation me too. Me too. So where do you and, want to start us off today? Yeah. So one thing I wanted to really kind of check in with is there was this article recently in the Atlantic. Mm. It was about Europe's ex-royals. So that's been on my radar because the article was looking at who the players are in Europe and the family histories of even a wider pool of people than just the Habsburgs. Of course, we look at the Habsburgs too. The King of Albania, I saw, seemed to be living a very modest life in, uh, in that article. Indeed, indeed. And I loved the moment when Carl, uh, Carl von Habsburg, of course, he's the head of House of Habsburg Lorraine. We're fans of him here on this show. I really loved Absolutely. the moment when he came on the Zoom with the reporter and the reporter asked him, you know, what 
can an old family like the Habsburgs offer Europe in the 21st century? And I think that his response was spot on. He said, I, I actually even have the quote right here. Hold on. He said, um, a sense of history. If you want to understand or do hmm. any prediction on what might theoretically happen in the future, you have to base it on something, right? So yeah. obviously, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And perhaps also tellingly of the future, Carl in that moment, he also said that the Habsburgs, they've only been out of power for two generations. And comparatively, that's actually not very long if you look at the rest of the family no, history, right? So I think there might be some implication there, who knows, but of future power that the Habsburgs could hold. Well, well, well where are we going to start? Uh, where are we going to start today with the Habsburgs, knowing, of course, that they're probably all going to be, you know, part of Elon Musk's Twitter mafia on the right. continent? Yeah. Forward. So I think just really quickly before we get there, I did want to talk before. actually about a couple other families that were mentioned in the articles and how other family. yeah because the Habsburgs they really you know they weren't operating in a vacuum right they were operating in the interplay of all of these other royal families in Europe and so we have to understand how they intertwine in order to understand the modern day arena of all of these different ex-royals I'm up for this. I'm up for this. Totally. Let's hear, the, let's hear the other teams. Let's hear the other Great. teams. Great. So the other teams. Yeah, yeah. So we have the Bourbons, right? So the Bourbons were a European royal family originating in France. They ruled for many centuries, mostly in France, but also in Sicily and Spain. And they had a hostile relationship with the Habsburgs, often fighting with them and not intermixing as much of others. We have and, and, and with the time we're talking about now, everybody's super Catholic, so there's not going to be any like we're more everybody's Catholic than you super kind of Catholic, stuff. yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, but don't worry, we'll we'll get there. So we also have the Romanovs who were mentioned. They were the Russian emperor emperors, right? They were of God. Course, these families are all the same. They you know basically what I mean? like, are right. Yeah, yeah, and they're all very old, uh, and they also largely ruled until early on in the 20th century, right? They all similarly Russia, faced yeah. coups and revolutions and sometimes executions, right? Like the Romanovs were all executed, of course, uh, in the Russian Revolution. And now they do have some modern-day uh, family members, distant relatives who claim succession and it's always shady though right so it's, think, always like, it's always I feel like shady it's always like the bourbons have more paperwork yeah they have way more paperwork there are at least three modern day individuals in france who lay claim to the french uh dynasty and they are pretty silly people so i uh, on top of that we also have, and this is who I like, really want to talk about. Okay. We have the House of Hohenzollern. So the House of Hohenzollern, it's of particular importance to us in relationship to the Habsburgs. So there's many parallels and also intersections with them over time. You know, I think there's even a case, because they have modern-day descendants too, so I think there's even a case for like a whole spinoff show for keeping up with the Hohenzollerns. They're really cool. 
Are they from um, more northern Germany? Because I will say, I think there's things named after them, like my doctor's street, I think is. Yeah, that wouldn't be too surprising. Uh, they actually originated in Swabia along... Uh, back in right, Swabia. In the, so they are super Swabia, local to the Habsburgs. Super local to the Habsburgs in the 11th century is when they originated. So they also originated at a very similar time. And they supported another house, the House of Hohenstaufen, was also a noble house in Swabia at the time. And those three houses all actually worked together and were quite amicable and mutually supportive. I'm pretty sure that you made the last one of them up, but that but this is incredibly interesting and I think probably speaks to a higher truth. So we, we will forgive you that. Yes, thank you. Uh, thank is you. Is that the chessboard, basically? Um, yeah. Well, I think I do have just a few more notes, a, a, a few more quick notes on the, the Hohen-Zollerns, uh, because they did come to be very significant later on, even though they weren't as powerful earlier on. They came to occupy the positions of Emperor of Prussia and king of Germany. Mm -hmm. And they did so until the German Revolution in which they were ousted, and that was after Germany's defeat in World War One. right? So we see all of these rulers kind of facing the consequences of World War One and the aftermath and you know, the revolutions taking place at that time. Yeah, we're in Charlottenburg here, so that's definitely kind of the heart of old Prussia. For us, exactly. Yeah. Right. And the Hohenzollern, so they were split into two branches, right? We have the Swabian branch on one hand, and they were Catholic. And we have the Franconian branch on the other. And though the Franconian branch is the one who became the rulers of Prussia. And very critically, they had actually became Protestant in the 16th century. So they broke off significantly from the Catholic side and from Catholic interests at that time. And their, their break is a huge part of the Protestant Reformation and the history there, which I'm just so excited to get to soon. I know I'm excited for that, as you know, so I don't even mean to like jinx it by harping on it. So I just want to ask you the um, tradition that we hear constantly of Prussia and their military. Uh, and uh, to be honest, up here, there isn't that much going on in terms of agriculture or industry. So it makes sense to have a good military. Is that from there? Is that something that the house uh, was was known for? You know, if the Habsburgs were known for their sort of scheming marriages and power brokering, they were more known for their march on in straight lines and get it done. Yeah, I think that that's right. And I think that it was important for them for a long time. They were always under threat, right? So being able to have, you know, defenses and be armed and be able to protect yourself, that's how they survived through centuries of attacks on their family dynasty. This is so interesting. And so uh, how do you think that, the, you know, just – we have the lay of the land. What are the Habsburgs better at than all of these folks? Why Why do we talk about them? Right. Well, I think that the Habsburgs have far more compelling contemporary heirs. Uh, I think that Carl especially 
is oh, really back on Carl. Yeah. yeah, back on Carl. I think that he's doing such a great job of representing the Habsburg line and all of the Habsburgs virtually do work in politics. And I think that they're the ones who are really advancing how a so-called ex-royal can really be royal in, in today's world. Uh, look, and I, I, I hesitate to make any comparisons um, because it's specifically not your job. This is specifically not your job. Uh, but when it comes to the ex-royal world, you mean how people who hold on to titles can continue to exercise power, not how can Meghan Markle continue, you know, That's to, right. do, to do the Meghan Markle thing. That's right. The Meghan Markle thing is its whole own thing. That is its own own thing. Uh, listen, I know we didn't, we didn't get there, but I appreciate you letting us see these other players on the field. I often say the supporting characters in politics are the ones that we don't look at and we should. So, uh, we appreciate you bringing them in and giving us a much richer tapestry that the Habsburgs are sewing on. Are they sewing on a tapestry? You don't paint on a tapestry. You, you, you sew the tapestry. Embroider? You can embroider the tapestry. And I think that that's what we're doing here together. Thank Indeed. you so much, Holly Brett, for coming on uh, with us. And uh, I hope you had a good May Day. And I hope that we'll see you soon. Thank you. You too. Thanks so much for tuning into the committee program. We know you have many options when it comes to content consumption, and we appreciate your attention to this new season with new episodes on Sundays at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and at 10 p.m. Central European Time. You can support the show by becoming a member on patreon.com slash the committee program. You can follow committee on Twitter, uh, backslash committee pro, on YouTube, the committee program, on Instagram, the committee program, on Facebook, the committee program, and you can visit the committee program company store at tpublic.com, the committee program shop. Special thanks, as always, to our team, Javad Castrati, Fiamma Melli, Jacobo Castelletti, Forrest Levette, and committee's deputy director, Julia Doubleday. Look alive out there. It's later than you think. It's the end of our broadcast day. Thanks for listening.
This was the 13th program in our second series. For more global infotainment from the committee program, click on the video screen right or screen left. Please like and subscribe to the committee program on Sundays at 4 p.m. Eastern and 10 p.m. Central European time.